Hello, my name is Devin Johnson. I am a business program manager on Microsoft's legal business operations strategy and modern legal team. I produce content for the Business of Law podcast, including this episode. This episode, we're speaking with Clive Gringas, head of technology at CMS. This episode includes Clive's path and journey in the legal world, diversity, value-based billing and partnership, and the legal world going forward. Hello, I'm Jason Barnwell. I lead Modern Legal for Microsoft. Today, I'm speaking with Clive Gringas, Head of Technology, Media, and Telecommunications at CMS, a global firm. Uh, We work with Clive all over the place uh, in corporate external legal affairs. He is one of our most trusted advisors and brings a great perspective uh, on, on just really having been a part of an integral relationship uh, for so long, but also having done so many different types of work. And so I'm delighted to sit down and chat with you today. So before we get into some of the substantive questions, how did you get into law? What was your path? I decided I wasn't going to be good at medicine, I think, realistically. I started off doing medicine, and in the UK, you do that as a first degree, so I'm kind of 18, 19, going to medicine, because science is what I'm interested in, although important background is I was also coding. So back in the day, when people used to code for fun, uh, not just for business, I was playing around on computers. Off I started at medical school and realised it really wasn't for me, so I had that face to face with mum and dad and said I don't think this is for me and they said okay fine so I left medical school and I decided what else was I going to do. Uh, My grandfather was a a lawyer and it sounded like it was quite a cool thing to do so I moved into law and started off at uh, the University of Sheffield and I loved it and then I moved on to University of Oxford and while I was there working with a phenomenal professor called Colin Tapper who'd written a book amusing now to think about such a book called Computer Law and he kind of inspired me and while I was at Oxford I was commissioned to write a book called The Laws of the Internet so I wrote that way back in 97 and uh, that was how I got my introduction to law and how I was able to fuse my love of technology and computers with the practice of being a lawyer. So this is very interesting for me because it explains a few things that I see. So one of the things I observe about how you practice is you really do see the world a little bit differently. It seems like you have kind of a native native systems level view of things. And the reason that's unique is If you think about how lawyers are created, typically what you do is you find these people who want to be crafts craftspersons, right? Who go very, very deep on a topic, which you are certainly capable of doing as you have demonstrated on many occasions. But in many instances, culturally, that's to the exclusion of kind of, if I'm honest, the bigger picture. And thinking about, you know, how does, for lack of a better term, the piecework that I as a craftsperson do fit into that larger kind of substrate. And it's very intriguing to me that you started off in a different place where, you know, when you're thinking about medicine, it is a very much a systems approach, right? It's right. not like there's an organ that is, uh, for lack of, for, if you'll pardon the pun, disembodied. Like it, it operates in a thing. system. Right. Yeah. And I think 
and credit to many of my clients, they let me see the things that they aren't necessarily completely on point with the very subject I'm advising them on. Because so, so many of these issues can't be disembodied. You can't really advise the consumer team, say within a Microsoft, unless you actually understand the way that that might have collateral value or damage to the rest of the business. And there are many clients who don't want lawyers to do that. They want outside counsel to be outside. You come in, you do your job, you leave. And Microsoft and a few others, but not many others, allow me to wander the corridor in a both a realistic and a metaphorical sense and actually to learn and pick up and maybe add two things together and understand how to deliver better advice. And I'm I'm curious. I'm still curious. I mean, I, I, I kind of say it all the time, which is still my greatest love is the law. I mean, it is. it still fascinates me. It's not to me something you just do every day to earn a check. I still love the thing and read, you know, read cases because I find them interesting. So I, you hit something there that is very important. So to be an effective and trusted advisor for our business, you really do need that curiosity and the horizontal view. Because as you mentioned, it is often the case that an issue does not remain siloed in one place. The implications of it will, will travel because that is the nature of how we, uh, that, that, that's how our business works. There's a lot of interconnected pieces. And the other thing that I, I should note is, it is, it's an expensive process for you to acquire that, right? You have to get on the ground and meet people. And I think that's where you are quite exceptional in as much as you understand that, you know, you, yes, there is the connection that comes from doing the work, but you also make substantial investment. It's happening right now. You know, you're, right. you're, you're on our campus. This yeah. is, you, are, you are a resident in, uh, in London. And you make substantial time investment to come on the ground, to meet with people, to just have a sense of, hey, what are you working on? Like, what kind of problems are you seeing? Like, how can I help you? And I think that is differentiating. Well, that's, that, that's great to hear. And I think the, the, the best example of that for me was when Mike Phillips was going off on his, so Mike Phillips, one of the uh, um, lawyers here at Microsoft, one of the attorneys here at Microsoft, he was going off on his sabbatical, I think about 10 years ago. And we were chatting because I was about to go off on my sabbatical and we're chatting about who's going to backfill him and how the team is going to operate and so on and so forth. And we came to this crazy idea that when he was off on sabbatical, I would come on secondment over to Building 34 over there across campus and sit physically in his seat seeing his photos and seeing the stuff on his desk and actually learning the what goes on behind the scenes on the other side of the fence and lisa tansey was um one of the dgc's within microsoft was 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 supportive of that and my phone was supportive of that and i did it for about two months and i learned a couple of really important things um one of the things i learned is that i wasn't a very good in-house lawyer that was something i learned definitely and i I remember having an NDA that came across my desk for negotiation and turning around and realizing there was no associate or trainee to help me on it. Uh, and that actually the, there's a very different concept of teamwork. And that I think really opened my eyes into realizing you just don't know a client unless you're spending lots of time with them off the matter. And you need to be careful about that because they've got a job to do other than just to talk to outside counsel when they've got no work to deliver. And sometimes I'll overstep the mark and people will say, no, I'm busy. And sometimes actually they'll have time and something they say to me ends up being a value later on. So I think there, I suspect there are two things you probably observed and internalized that I suspect 
help you be such an effective partner for us now. So one is the perception of how legal work actually creates value inside the walls. Because I, I, as a former outside counsel, I often didn't have a deeper sense of the problem that the person who came to me was trying to solve. Right. I had their projection kind of filtered for my view. Absolutely. But I often didn't know how that tracked back to an underlying business issue and what they were going to do with what they what I gave them. Right. So I suspect that you got to see a little bit more of that. The other thing that I I don't know that you can truly understand until you're on the inside is how decisions are made. Yes. And so I'm curious if you if you if you have any thoughts about how that did you have any observations has that impacted how you how you practice now? So the first on on your first point uh and the firm will remain uh, nameless because they're a great firm, but I received, because I was sort of uh, almost aliasing for Mike, I received some work they'd done internationally. And I, I still describe it as the stack of memos. I received a stack of memos from different countries and say the Italians say said something like, it cannot be discounted that there is a reasonable risk of. And then the Brits said, there are many cases that go either way. And the US said something else. And I realized that passing those different, and um, passing those different memos where they weren't calibrated, I didn't really know where the Italians thought it was more of a risk than the UK lawyers. And so that made me realize that the work that had to be done in simply understanding what outside counsel had tried to present uh, made me realize that user interface of how you provide your advice is so important. It is so important. And it's something I annoy, I'm sure, my associates and partners in sometimes turning their emails upside down. I'll say, right, so at the very end, you've created the conclusion. Can we have that at the very beginning, please? Because they may not need to keep reading, right? Um, and I think, I'd also have to say that that's because Microsoft, certainly, you know, LCA then when it was, when I was with Mike uh, and Sela now, um, it has quite an open understanding that some things are really complicated. You may, may not get them right first time. And there are some real experts within Sela and that therefore you don't have a monopoly over the truth just because you're outside counsel. You can iterate round and round and get the right answer. And therefore to, you don't have to present everything 100% perfect. Actually, sometimes 80% of the answer given 80%, 80 times faster is much better than waiting a long time. So that user interface and explaining where you have a risk and where you don't know the answer and whether in-house counsel wants to wants to look in more deeply. So that's one thing it definitely learned me, that stack of memos. I still remember the stack of memos and thinking there must be a better way and, and there clearly are better ways and we and other law firms, I know, deliver that uh, to you and others. Um, your second point, I think, was about how decisions are made. Um, yeah, I, I actually, I do, I distinctly remember going, I had some indemnity and it was, I, I can't even remember even what it was, but I, I walked around into Chad's office, Chad Fisher's office, who was next door to me and asked him a question and he threw back to me and said, well, what do you think? And it was that first point where I realized I didn't have an anchor of, as in-house lawyers don't, you don't have an anchor of the case or the statute or the weighted probability matrix that's been built by some external consultancy. It's what do you think? And that's often the advice we try to deliver is try to help in-house counsel think how to think about the answer. We may not know the answer, but here are the parameters you should think about. Here's the sorts of ways things are, are, are done. 
So it was it was a total eye opener, uh, and um, it gave me even more. Uh, it, it, it it gave me even more. Um, I was so much more impressed, actually, by seeing the work that was done when in-house counsel was not dealing with outside counsel. That 95%, that 99%, that stuff under the water is really what supports the top of the uh, top, top of the iceberg. It was fascinating. I so, really enjoyed it. So what you're really getting at, and this is a, a topic of deep interest for me, is what is judgment? Because you described a couple things there. So one is the intuitive right-sizing of how much effort should I apply to this, to this work to get a good enough answer fast enough to be useful. Right. And as much as I'd love to believe there, that we are, we are very close to science on that, I think we're gonna be in art land <laughs> yes. for a really long time. And I'm curious if you have any, like, so how did you, so I think you are quite adept at that skill was that a practice thing? Like, is that a, a you get repetitions? Where does that come from for you? And there may be no great answer. So I'm taking you off way off script. Yeah, no, and, and, and I think it's being afraid. I think what stops people being able to form judgment is being afraid, frankly, of getting something wrong because they believe there's a right and a wrong answer. And they believe that perhaps, and particularly lawyers, they believe, you know, well, but you could be sued unless you put the opposite point of view as well. And then you stand on the fence and you say, jump either way. And actually, if you have a trusted with a little t, if you have a trusted relationship with outside counsel and outside counsel with in-house lawyers, then you can say, here are the things I know for certain and here are the things I don't know. You may not care. You may just want my view or you may want me to delve into them. But sometimes I think what outside counsel does and what some of my colleagues do is they is they think that every single piece of in-house counsel's decisions depend on what outside counsel tells them and it's just not the case at all so actually maybe missing out that bottom 20 percent isn't a big deal because in-house counsel had that nailed anyway and that would have been 15 more pages of stuff they didn't need to read and so so i think that's part of it but the other part jason is I think the concept of a memo that begins and ends as being the totality of all possible questions is the wrong approach. I think the right approach is almost the one we're having right now this second, which is, I'll say something, you'll iterate, you'll nod or you'll shake or, he's not actually, Jason isn't doing much shaking, but doing much nodding. And that that really helps is saying, I can get you this far with this answer. Do you need more, yes or no, as opposed to, boxing everything in the ultimate permutations of every single possible set of instruction then you deliver the final product now what's interesting about what i've just said is that doesn't work well when you're thinking about how you bid out work on a fixed fee type process because the thought is outside counsel need to know exactly what they have to deliver how many turns of the document and how many pages and inside counsel in-house counsel needs to know exactly what they're bidding out so that then each firm can compare and so i see a tension there um, but i think even that can be even that can be boxed in well let you open the door on it so let's talk about value-based building and and alternative fees so you have been quite adept at bringing matters forward to, across many of our, our businesses that embrace these new models. 
And it seems like you have some observations about, you know, how they align us and but some of the challenges that they they bring. And one of the things that I'm particularly curious about is what are some of the challenges that these different ways of working together create for you as, as our partner? Right. So it's first I think it's first worth saying something that everyone in my firm knows. Um, which is why I'm so attracted to value-based billing, which is I'm probably one of the worst time recorders in the firm. So anything that gets me away from timesheets is is a delight. Uh, and uh, the irony, of course, is that value-based billing still hasn't gotten away in how, outside counsel from timesheets. So if you're looking at the biggest uh, gap, it's the fact that we want to deliver it may not be fixed fee, but you want to deliver something with certainty that people could have predicted at the beginning. And I think fixed fee is a misnomer. I think it's more about certainty. Um, we want to deliver that great certainty, which is a final number, which means that people don't have to go through lines of narratives and lawyers may not have to record their time. And yet internally, still within law firms, we're slicing and dicing our life into six minute units. And so I'm incentivized to get away from that because I hate doing timesheets uh, and uh, we have great models, great incentives or sticks for me to do my timesheets, not necessarily to record um, every minute, but to make sure I at least record what I'm doing. And that's to me still is a fundamental challenge. You've got a business that's been entirely built, yeah, outside counsel still built on timesheets and that's always going to be a struggle until the law firms figure out a way of not monitoring that of incentivizing people to do significantly more for their clients in a faster period of time that to me seems like a complete dream that's like isn't that fantastic wow you can go home earlier and earn the same amount of money that seems something that you'd want to encourage and we have certain ways within our firm of doing that with things like gross margin which looks at how much time you spend uh, uh, and rewards you even if you don't spend the same amount of time as you would have done, but you build as though it would have been that time, then that's that's valued. But still, it all comes down to, but how many hours would you have spent on it? And that ends up being a proxy. It ends up being the proxy, certainly within law firms. And I think until we get away from that, uh, I think we're still gonna be left with the challenge. I think the great news is that law firms like mine and others understand that uh, Clients just don't get the memo anymore that I'm afraid it's all about timesheets. So the good news is we've moved to try and accommodate your needs and businesses needs. The bad news is I don't think we as a profession have done enough to internalize those changes and restructure the way we incentivize people to work. So there, if I'm hearing this properly, there's effectively this almost impedance mismatch in as much as the model that functions internally within firms just doesn't really line up very well with how we're starting to see some trends from, from buying behaviors. And so you effectively have this mismatch that just makes it very hard to reconcile for the, our partners at our firms. It does, Jason. Um, but you know what? I think that's all right. Because I think in a sense, uh, every business doesn't need to reveal the difficulties they're having in, in delivering the services. So I, I think it, sometimes I think it's just fine, right? So we've got some difficulties. We have to adjust the way we deliver. Good, that's okay. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't matter that much as long as what we're doing is delivering to you what you wanted. I think where we had the challenge before, maybe five, 10 years ago, is where law firms kept on pushing this hourly model to clients that didn't want it. 
at least now we have a situation the clients are essentially buying what they want to buy not buying what they were forced to buy and if the law firms you know bless them have a few difficulties in delivering it so be it i'm quite sure that when i play around uh, on your beta or when i'm you know playing minecraft earth and what i'm sure you've had more complications in delivering that than than i actually perceive but that's okay that's fine your job is to hide the wiring from me and i think that um law firms shouldn't cry too much about the fact that they're going to have difficulties aligning their own incentives with the incentives that the clients have that's what we get paid to do we get paid to give you some solutions rather than to give you all our problems so revealing my personal bias uh my challenge with that is so i, I was an associate at a law firm and the way that i delivered value was not going to be rewarded by the internal structure and so that what i did was i solved for that by by leaving the firm yes because if i'm gonna so i was making investments in my own uh, my shadow technology yes. stack that yeah. i was producing for myself right and it became clear like oh this efficiency that you're introducing like this is not this is something that will not get you rewarded here and at that point i i, I made some decisions and so my concern systemically as a, a partner and a purchaser is that when there is that kind of misalignment yes. then what are the incentives for the people who can bring the future of your business forward to stick around well i think i mean it maybe i'm maybe people are more callous than than i give them uncredit un for but i think people are still motivated by the same old things they've always been motivated by. I think they're motivated, is it exceptional work? Is it a great client? Is there great credit for what they're doing? Do they feel they're moving things forward? And on a bunch of the work we've done at CFA, I can honestly say that there's the conditional fee arrangements or AFAs, alternative fee arrangements, I can honestly say the associates, the partners haven't pushed back. They haven't pushed back on the basis that it's being billed in a different way because it gives you another um, viewpoint on what you're delivering for the client, which means it actually ends up being more interesting for them. So at the moment, I think the, the balance is fine. I think you're right, Jason, that in a market, you could imagine if you, if you, if you think about the law firm as operating in a market where there are some clients who are doing things on an hourly rate and some clients who are doing on a fixed fee or alternative fee arrangement, you could theoretically think there'll be partners and associates who will be driven towards the hourly rate more because it allows them to maybe rack up more time or more fees. But the fact is through clock and just general common sense that's happening in the market, more and more clients are moving towards fixed fees. So there will be no alternative for firms and associates other than by just delivering the value at the price they thought they were delivering at. Um, what we have in our firm is a concept of our hourly cost. So we, the partners, have some incredibly sophisticated pricing tools where I can see the cost of each hour that is delivered as opposed to the charge out rate. And that allows me to understand almost the cost of my time, the cost of the widgets that are going into it. And that allows me to think whether there are different ways of delivering it that may be better for the client and actually better for the firm. But getting away entirely from understanding the cost of the individuals you have in your organization, I think we're always going to need that to make sure that we're operating profitably. Uh, yes. Amen. Yeah. I, 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 so it's, uh, I'm always intrigued 
when I have conversations with firms where they are very much focused on effectively how many hours are going out the door and they're less focused about what is the the, the cost of goods sold, right? basically. And yeah. so uh, that just seems like like good business sense. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about talent mm-hmm. uh, because I think underlying what you're talking about there is you, you need to bring capable, clever, hardworking people in the door uh, and, and give them great problems and great clients to work with. And so I'm curious for your firm, you know, what, what does that look like and how are you thinking about making sure that the composition of the people that you're bringing in uh, is, is what you need to be most successful? Well, I'm, I'm biased um, because I believe that the very best lawyers, uh, of course, they've, I'm a, it's state-nizers, they're bright, and they've done their law degree and or they've done their postgraduate. I need infectious enthusiasm and, and outrageous curiosity, and that's what I need in the teams I have working for me. Other lawyers will have different viewpoints, but that's what I need. Um, and... I'm fortunate and I will often get it. Um, But what I've learned, Jason, is that if you're not getting it, it's very difficult to ask people to be infectiously enthusiastic. Um, It's like saying, please tell me a funny joke. You immediately know it's not gonna be funny. So we have uh, quite a long process of bringing people into the firm, uh, certainly at the junior level. Um, We have an academy. In actual fact, we run an academy for people who even aren't gonna join our firm and letting that stuff bubble up. So it doesn't matter what you got at school, but are you, are you curious? Are you going to ask the question even though you think everyone else knows it? Sometimes they don't know it, by the way, but so that's something we we look at a lot. Uh, and not surprisingly, you find the people who um, want to know the questions more are the people who have not been involved in the law, who are the first person to go to university. Because you know what, they literally don't know. They've got no one to ask. Um, And so ironically, we find people can be more curious when they're coming from outside the the Oxbridges or what have you in that they haven't been brought up in that environment. They may not have gone to those particular universities or they may not have been brought up even in a home that speaks English as a first language. And they necessarily come with that more curious nature because they have to find the answer by asking it rather than by learning it from what mum and dad were saying. Um, So we love that. And we also love the fact, and I, I used to be at a firm called Oldswang. We merged with with CMS. Oldswang had some phenomenal some phenomenal characteristics. One characteristic it didn't have is being across the globe. CMS is across the globe. It's got lots of offices. There's you know 79 offices, 40 odd countries, and by definition, when you're on the phone with someone who isn't from your culture, isn't from your country it changes the way in which you're thinking of recruiting someone who's gonna work with that individual because they don't have those common touch points. And so they need to be able to operate on a different level, uh, working with people from very different cultures. And so that necessarily means you have to have a more diverse workforce because you're working with people who are also diverse. And so you can't have this sort of commonality. So that's kind of how I view it. But I, I come back to this point, which is there are a million bright lawyers out there, but having a lawyer who says I read this thing this morning that is the joy for me I read this thing this morning not because I was told to but I read it because it was on a blog or or what have you so give me someone who's uh, interested and interesting that 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 helps a huge amount so you're looking for curiosity and intrinsic motivation right that's that makes a lot of sense so 
You started talking about, really, I think, diversity and thinking about bringing lots of different perspectives to your firm, to your practice. And I think I have a very provincial view of what that means based on you know where I live and where I grew up. And I'm, I'm curious, what is what does diversity look like in the UK? So what are some of the issues and challenges that you observe and that you're trying to make better? So, um, it, I mean, the, obvi- the obvious one, I'm going to say it's obvious because I think it's it's obvious, but it's, it's given a huge amount of attention as well, is uh, male-female diversity. Um, my... Yeah, I, I can't look at my daughter and my wife and think it makes sense to have a profession which has a fixed quota of, of men and women, which is out of kilter with the genetic quota of men and women. And that's a that's a challenge for law firms. Um, I know Mary Snap had this lovely phrase. So um, she once said, I, I think she was quoting someone else, but um, I go where I'm invited and I stay where I'm welcome. And we we certainly see that. We certainly see that in the profession, that if you look at a snapshot of the number of women, say, in the partnership or, or female associates, um, it may look very healthy. It may be, say, 50%, maybe 60%. The question to me is, what's the churn? Is Are you simply replacing 60%, 30% unhappy with another 30% unhappy? And so I think that's where we as a profession need to start focusing our attention is not just what do your statistics look like, but are these people staying or are you simply replacing them with the yet more people who are going to be unhappy? Um, so that's one aspect of diversity. You have BAME and, and disabilities, but I think the area that we maybe as a country or certainly as a firm focus on a lot is on social mobility. Uh, by which, by which it, referring back to what I said earlier about people who just haven't had the chances I've had. They haven't had grandpa who was a lawyer and mum and dad who could fund me when I dropped out of medical school. And they didn't have my brother who could help me write my essays and so on and so forth. And they just have massive disadvantages. Uh, and we as a firm do a bunch of stuff to help. So one of the things we do is we have a, a tutoring program where we, associates and partners, will tutor kids from disadvantaged schools. So I tutor biology, um, and that was fascinating, and it took me kind of two hours before every hour lesson to uh, to try and tutor biology, and she did pretty well. I was very happy with where she got to, and she's now working as a pharmacist, so I was happy about that. So that introduces us to social mobility out of law. Just, we're massively privileged. I'm, I've got to say, I'm privileged. I've had a phenomenal, phenomenal life, and to be able to pass that on is great, but we also encourage those people who haven't had the chances to come into the law. And I think I'm certainly seeing, I think that is something which sadly does read across onto color. Uh, in many territories. That doesn't mean that there aren't disadvantaged white folk, there are, but we do see a huge correlation between color of skin and social mobility. And so one of the ways we are attacking uh, the BAME issues that we have in the UK is through social mobility, as because you tend to, sadly, you tend to get a higher percentage who are in the BAME category, who are socially disadvantaged in their upbringing in the UK still. So that's one thing we do. And um, 
you know I think it I think it works I think it's going to take a long 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 time a long time because a lot of this stuff is societal um, I mean I'm, I'm not joking Jason when I tell you that the the girl I was tutoring biology um, she was writing her notes on the back of her bills on the back of you know um, invoices and stuff that her parents have received and I said to her like I'm sorry to, and she was doing lines you know she's using a ruler to draw lines on the piece back of the piece of paper and I said to her, you, you, you've really got to get into the habit of using, you know, using A4, using full scat paper, because this is what you're going to have in the exam. And she said, I have no paper at home. And honestly, I could not believe that. I could not believe you got no paper at home. So then I handed her the, um, the notepad we had, the Oldsmark notepad. And I said, look, keep this. And she said, well, well, but I can't accept gifts because part of the tutoring program is she can't accept gifts from me. So I said, it's great. We're winding the firm up. It's all going to be pulped. Have the pad. She smiled and she said, could I have another one? And it was like giving a child sweets. And to think that we have a situation, this is in London. I mean, think about the disadvantage that individual has. So the help they therefore need to be able to enter the legal profession, the place of words and writing. Um, and I think that tells you just how far we need to go. But law firms alone aren't going to get there. But I'm going to do it alone. They're going to need you need help from society, from schools and from employers like Microsoft and others. So I observe some of the macro issues that are happening in the world as we publish this mean that we need more pharmacists and we need more medical professionals in the, in the world. And, right. you know, if we have these systematic impediments to, to getting the talent yes. closer to the opportunities that unleash their potential, then we as a world are much worse off. Correct. Interrupting the interview, Clive was kind enough to explain later that BAME is an acronym that expands to Black, Asian, and Minority Ethnic. Are you getting any type of partnership uh, from Microsoft uh, in, in the work that we do with you that is, is helping in this process? So we do. Um, I mean, we, we do. We've got something slightly more formal coming in. Um, but I think we've always had we've always been encouraged to just put our best people forward. Mm -hmm. And I found in, in my career that the best people don't always fit in exactly the same white Anglo-Saxon male shape. You know, guess what? They Everyone looks different or they act different or they need help walking or they need help seeing. So, so actually the great thing about Microsoft is it's never, I've never been asked by any folk within Microsoft, but what university did they go to? Mm -hmm. But, you know, are they a member of my rowing club? That's just not a question that comes into... In fact, I don't think I've even been asked for a resume or curriculum vitae, as we would say, because it's basically, it's about what you do. It's how you act and how you behave. So I think that's part of the encouragement. And then I think also you've got a program you've run in the States for many years, which I've been very jealous of, which is um, your kind of diversity program. Not only jealous because I know that there was a time when bonuses were delivered and I ran the maths and thought that our firm could have got the bonus, not only because of that, but because it's a useful forcing function for me to be able to deliver to my management, to my senior leaders, what clients are asking for, right? Which means I get to get the people working for me who I want, which are great people, as opposed to great people who look in a particular way. So we've recently filled in it's quite complicated spreadsheet that looks at how many of our partners are male and female and minorities and how many on a management committee are and how many, ironically, how many hours are done by Microsoft on Microsoft account. And that's been fascinating because I don't think we've ever looked at it from sort of the, it's not even the top to the bottom, but right to left to see 
and, it, and it's it's quite marked, right? It's quite marked. We've got around 30% of the firm are female, around 38% of the management team are female, um, but around 68% of the Microsoft hours we deliver are from female, and about 66% of the theme of the hours we deliver to Microsoft from associates are female. So what you're seeing is that we've essentially got a a firm within a firm, right? This it's upside down. We have 60 or more female hours than male hours on the Microsoft account, and yet within the firm itself, we have more uh, male partners than female partners. It's about 50-50 on associates, uh, but at the management level, it's about 38%. So, so that shows you that it's harder harder for us to do the work within the Microsoft account within the body of the firm and that's changing and we're doing a great job but it drives the right behavior it drives the right behavior because when I'm able to look at the hours and say look at this this is how it's this is what's happening so it is helpful when someone like Tish asks these these questions of you and says hey I, I want to understand more about phenomenal yeah yeah no I mean it really it, it, and you know you think I would say this, wouldn't I? But honestly, it really is. I, but first of all, because I love data, right? So it allows you to play with stuff, and you know, it's always nice to have a Microsoft spreadsheet. Um, and 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 because it's being looked at on a quarterly basis, it's not dealing with that churn issue, though, Jason. Mm -hmm. So I think if there was one, if there was one change. Uh, how you can track it, I don't know. It would be the churn question. I have some ideas. It would be, I, I bet you do. But but frankly, a firm that stays at 68% but, but, but continues to roll in new people every year, that may not be a good sign. It may be a good sign, but it may not be a good sign. It may be that the diverse staff aren't feeling, to Mary Snap's point, they're being invited, but they're not feeling welcome. So they do their year and they leave. That wouldn't be a good thing. In actual fact, I think that would be worse almost than a firm that's not at 50%, but everyone they bring in stays, they come in as an associate and they leave, they retire as a partner. Um, but all these data points are great. And I think the quarterly stuff, which we're having to do, look at it on a quarterly basis is great because what Microsoft has done is it said, here's your benchmark and what can you do to improve? So what it looks like today, it shouldn't look like tomorrow because there's always more that can be done. And, and that's great because it allows me to monitor it and I like monitoring stuff. And it allows me to you know, push back on management if, as, if, as if they need it, but it allows me to actually see tracking. Um, being compared with other law firms, nah, not sure I like that so much. If we come out top, I'll be very happy. Nah, not sure I like that bit of competition. I think there's enough competition within my own spreadsheet, but I understand we have other other competitors out there. So I'm I'm watching Clive with this just very uh, impressive looking spreadsheet in front of him right now. And I guess the, the, the final question I have is where, what do you think about the future of the practice? Like where are things going? Like how are you thinking about as we look forward to the next decade that you might adjust how you work to bring more value to your clients and your customers? So, having been around technology for so so many years one thing i hope technology and innovation doesn't stop are these kind of interactions so what so here's my here's my fear my fear of innovation of technology being delivered between law firms and in-house counsel is that the human interaction i get such a buzz out of of 
sometimes being the surgeon and saying it's going to be fine i've done this a thousand times before don't worry that is something i absolutely delight in and i know my associates and partners love that too about because what law firms have the privilege of doing is seeing lots of things before sometimes their clients do and i think it'd be a shame jason if in a strive for efficiency or profit what we stopped is the ability to say it's going to be fine or maybe it's not going to be fine this is the problem you need to anticipate you need to really tell the board this as opposed to just delivering it through a pivot table so so i think that's kind of a, a fear i have um that i won't be able to walk around red west and see folk and hear their issues but um but aside from that i just i i I geek out on this stuff. I love the idea. We've got a, um, a particular pitch for some work we're doing at the moment. And I threw in the idea that we could use Q&A Maker to take everything that we're doing and having a situation where maybe even your clients can self-serve, let alone Sealer and the in-house team can self-serve, can type in a, a free text question and get out an answer. I mean, it's, it's a total buzz. To me, that's incredibly exciting. And the fees and the liability and all that kind of stuff, I believe will sort itself out. To me, that's just amazingly exciting. Um, and uh, so that, that I, I love that stuff. That, that's wonderful. I just as a just a, 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 one one thing, I'm sure uh, the the team won't mind me saying this, but I was working on one particular matter where it was across like 58 different territories and they needed to do a risk analysis. And I used that tree map functionality within um, Excel. What we took is the size of the territory for Microsoft as being a proxy to the size of the square so that instead of everything looking red, or green, it looked red or green in proportion to the impact on Microsoft. And the tool was there and I hit play and the UI looked absolutely gorgeous for the client. And I get a buzz out of that, right? I get a buzz out of that because I go back to those 10 years ago in Mike Phillips's um, uh, seat. I don't want that stack of memos. I can't bear, I, can't, I couldn't bear to read it. I certainly couldn't bear to deliver it. So that's what I see the future as, is focusing a lot on the user interface um, and trying to make it just easier to get answers as opposed to the AI side of things, which I still see as solving many of the smaller, as they call, I call it the kind of the thousand one inch putts, which are really difficult to do a thousand one inch putts really well. And AI is great currently at doing that. And we use it on a number of, a number of matters, Kira analyzing documents, etc. But those big issues, those really complicated issues that are human, I hope that humans have the technology to help them, but I still love the human, human to human contact, H to H, I'd like to make sure we keep as much of that as possible like we are doing today, Jason. I think that is exceptionally well said. And I think that you're absolutely right that we need to find a way to, to integrate these amazing tools that we're gonna have, but in a way that really empowers the work, right? Right. Because in the end, this is a business about people. Right. And if we are bringing technologies to bear that are not serving humans and how we work and how we create value, then we're just not gonna be successful. And so I am heartened that there are people like you out there who are committed to building a future. And we are grateful for the partnership thank you very much. that you bring uh, to your work with Microsoft. And thank you for taking the time to sit down and chat with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And Jason, I will not now shake hands because we are 
We are delivering this and talking about this during the uh, troubling times of coronavirus. But Jason, consider this a virtual handshake. Thank you for inviting me. Virtual handshake. Thank you, Clive. Cheers. Thank you.